Let's pray together. Jesus, we, uh, we look to you today and we cast our cares upon you. We know that uh, you are good and whatever we're worried about or anxious about or whatever we have questions about, you are good and you are faithful all, all the time, all the time. And we do thank you for this unique season in which we can uh, gather with our families and in our homes. Um, make this time rich and sweet and good to us and grow our faith and our confidence in you, please, Lord. We love you, Jesus. You're the best. Amen. Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. I hope you guys are having a great day so far. I'm having a great day uh, getting to preach. Barefoot is more fun than not preaching barefoot. And uh, also, I wish we could do this by way of applause right now, but we can't. But our tech team and our comms team are absolutely just crushing it. They've done an incredible job in this season. So if you know any of them and you have their phone numbers, shoot them a text, get on Facebook shoot them a line or go to the church website and write them an encouraging email for their service during this season. And then when we all get back together, we'll give them a 10-hour applause. It will be wonderful. Uh, we also want to thank you guys for participating in ministry during this season, whether it's, <coughs> excuse me, whether it's Sunday mornings or digital small groups or FG nightly or the Monday, Wednesday, Friday Zoom prayer meetings. Thank you so, so much for staying involved with what we believe God is still doing in our lives here at Fellowship Greenville. So we're still a family and we're trying to do all this stuff together, even if it's at a distance. And I firmly believe that God is gonna use this season to re-energize our faith uh, and our love for him and our sense of mission with Jesus. On that note, our outreach team uh, does have a really simple and practical way <clears throat> to stay involved with our local partners. We're calling it Takeout Tuesday. On Tuesdays, if you go get food from a certain restaurant, a percentage of that will go to support one of our local ministry partners. So this Tuesday, if you go, just like me, to Tropical Grill on Woodruff Road, uh, a percentage of what you buy there will go to our friends at the Harvest Hope Food Bank. Just make sure to mention uh, Fellowship Greenville when you order. And what we'll do is we'll just keep you posted on all of our social media outlets and on our website about which restaurant and which ministry we will focus on each week on Tuesday. Additionally, if for some wild, crazy fun reason you have stumbled upon us on Facebook or YouTube, we do hope that our times of worship, singing, and scripture together will do one thing and one thing only, and that is point you to Jesus and the life that he offers. And to think more about this today, go ahead and get your Bibles. Maybe you have to go to another room and get one. Go ahead and get your Bibles and open to John chapter 12. That's where we will be today, John chapter 12. <clears throat> we have been studying the gospel according to John since last August, and it's been cool to slowly see the Jesus story unfold before us. And John says that his whole point is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king. And I've really loved exploring what this believing life should look like. And today we get to do that a little bit more from John chapter 12. We'll get there in a few minutes. I promise, I promise, I promise John chapter 12. Now, <clears throat> to start us off today, here's a little quote from my favorite existential Danish philosopher and yours, the great Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard writes, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. 
What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it sounds like he's onto something. He sounds smart. I think the rules are if your name has an O with a line through it, like old school European like that, that means you're smart. So there's probably something worth picking at in this line from Kierkegaard. Let me just see if I can put a, a story to his little proverb. <clears throat> Before I met uh, the amazing, wonderful, beautiful, lovely Sarah, I dated this other girl for about three years. A beautiful soul, absolutely. She has a beautiful family now. She and her husband are helping with a church plant in South Bend, Indiana, go Irish. But the last half of the time I dated this girl in college, I knew that God wanted me to marry her, right? I didn't think that I was supposed to marry her. I knew it, absolutely. Like I wasn't 18 and girl crazy anymore. I was a mature and a robust 20. And I had prayed about it. I had prayed about it a lot. I had talked to other godly people in my life and they didn't see any red flags or they didn't even see any yellow flags, if, if that's a thing. My family liked her. Her family liked me. They were like good old South Georgia rednecks, like my kind of people. And so it was so logical and so obvious that we were supposed to be together. <clears throat> in fact, I can take you to the booth in the Denny's on Wade Hampton Boulevard, right there past the Islamic Center, where one night her and I had a conversation and we basically decided on a timeline for us to get married. So in my mind and hers, it was, it was absolutely just as good as done. All we needed to do was, was be just like a little patient with, with school and graduation. <clears throat> and what we had was great because it wasn't just me who was thinking and feeling these things, but she was right there with me. And I wasn't waiting on her desires to catch up with mine. We both wanted that. We both wanted to get married, and that's just kind <clears> of <throat> where we lived. Well, long story short, months after this conversation, uh, another guy kind of entered her orbit, the guy that she married. Incredible guy. Sometimes I still call him uh, about some computer issues and questions that I have. But between us and between them, nobody lied, nobody cheated, nobody was like messing around physically. And within a few months, uh, my relationship with her just kind of dissolved. And now looking back at it, I am so, so thankful that it didn't work out for dozens of little reasons, but none of them uh, demeaning or, or belittling to her. She, she, she's great. But here's the deal. It's one thing to not know and be wrong, but I was right in the middle of it and I thought I was right and I was still dead wrong. Like I, I didn't get it. I couldn't see past my immediate feelings and interpretations and preferences. <clears throat> However, after the fact, like right now, when I look back on our relationship, it, it makes complete and total and utter sense to me. Like this is what I think Kierkegaard <clears throat> is saying. This is what I think he's saying. Life can only be understood backwards, but has to be lived forward. So I feel that, or at least I, <clears throat> I feel the, the first part of it. I wonder if any of you have something like that in your story. Maybe it's uh, as simple as being in your mid-20s and now you're starting to realize, oh, dang it, mom and dad, they were right about all these things. Or maybe now you see that it's good that you didn't major in philosophy or worse yet, why did I major in philosophy at a Baptist school, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you thought, you know what? This is going to be a good financial move. And that's what you thought at the time, but it wasn't a good move. Like, I wish I would have known 
then what I know now, that, that kind of thing. But I think this can also be an, an everyday issue. Like I never knew that my words and my actions would hurt them as much as they did. I just thought in the moment that I was telling them and, and showing them the truth. But now I understand and man, I was so wrong. Like maybe you have something like that in your past. I, we all do in different ways. <clears throat> now, some of you might be thinking, <clears throat> Jim, this is just a, a, a smarter sounding version of hindsight is twenty twenty, and, th- and that's what you're thinking. Well, kind of, <clears throat> but what Kierkegaard's saying is, is something more than that. And this is why his quote hits so hard to me, because he doesn't stop at hindsight. He's wrestling with how 2020 hindsight relates to the fact that 2020 foresight feels so elusive. It's like looking back, clear as day. Looking forward, thick as mud. And so what he's getting at is, is there a way, watch, is there a way to live forward with understanding? Like, is there a trick to it? Is it even possible. Can I learn from my mistakes before they happen? Wouldn't that be great? And all of this is especially fragile and vital if you're a follow, if you're a follower of, of, of Jesus. Just think about it. <clears throat> How often do you think you misunderstand God and what he's up to? Like even you can take that question and break it down. You can, you can apply it to God's character. Like you used to see God as upset with you and, and distant, and now you see him as gracious and near. Or maybe you don't totally understand, like we say that God is just and holy, but he's also merciful. So how can he be just and merciful at the same time? You could also apply this to God's will for your life. how often do you think you misunderstand what he wants you to do? Because this is not an issue of perception. This is an issue of obedience. Paul tells his friends in Ephesus in Ephesians 5, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's a command. And and the scary part of this is, is not asking the question, but being wrong. Like you're sure, absolutely sure that he wants you to, to date the guy, but he doesn't. You think he wants you to, uh, you don't think he wants you to have that hard conversation, but he does. Like maybe you had, maybe you roll like this, maybe you've had a dream or a vision or something, and you think that it's con- confirmation about family drama in your life, but, but it's not at all. You swear he wants you to take the job or the business deal, but he doesn't, Right? so confusing. Like you're faithful in corporate worship and in private worship. You're faithful in scripture and in prayer in small groups and on mission. And you've sought godly, godly counsel. And these kinds of things that I just said, they are all God's will for you, but you still have massive question marks about understanding what God is doing. So let's, let's spiritualize Kierkegaard. It's easy to understand what God is doing when you look backwards, right? It's easy but you have to live by looking forward. So how in the world are you gonna do that? Absolutely. <clears throat> life is clear in the rearview mirror, but we can't drive in the life of faith by only looking in the rear view. So we have to discern what faithfulness to God should be like when we're at the crossroads and not after we're lost on some other road later on. Like, can we recognize that with foresight? Or simply put, how do we understand 
what God is up to before and as it happens rather than after it happens. That's what we need to think about today. How do we understand what God is up to before and as it happens rather than later on? And I hope you feel how needed a conversation like this is. And today we will be helped out by a familiar story from the life of Jesus. And it's a story that I think is often misunderstood, which makes it a perfect uh, case study for what we're pondering. So let's look at John chapter 12, verses nine through 19, and see if we can find any wisdom and any answers to our questions this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. John chapter 12, verses nine through 19. Here we go. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd, crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing? Look, the the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, let's talk first about the most blatant misunderstanding in this whole passage. And we've been seeing this as we've been studying through John. Our text begins in verses 9 and 10 and ends down in verse 19 with the Pharisees, the the, the snobby religious dudes. And they have so incorrectly assessed God's activity in the world that they want to kill him, right? Not awesome. And not only do they want to kill the God-man Jesus, they want to kill this little movement that is gathering around him. So think about it. Lazarus has been raised from the dead and you're trying to you're trying to kill him. He is a walking miracle. He's a local hero right now. Think of the stories that this guy could tell. Try to find a way to leverage what has happened to him for your own agenda. I mean, come on, Pharisees, step up your game a little bit. Like, what if you could get him on your team? But no, look at verse 10. These Jewish leaders make plans to kill Lazarus. You also have to think about just how ignorant this is. They're like, hey, fatal sickness can't keep this guy down, but just you watch, we're gonna, we're gonna take him down. And why do they want to kill Lazarus? <clears throat> Verse 11, because his story was spreading, and if his story is spreading, so is Jesus's. Like, yeah, it's cool that a dead guy is 
walking, but the more cool thing is the guy who made the dead guy walk. And that's what's bothering the religious snobs, that other Jewish people are starting to follow this Jesus. And it's so important for John as he writes that he uses his big purpose word in verse 11. Look there, believe in Jesus. The purpose of everything that John writes is that people would believe and trust in Jesus and depend on him solely and fully for life with God. And this this drives the Pharisees crazy. Hey, they're the ones who, watch, they really, really understood what God was like and what he wants. And they know that they're not wrong. And this backwoods carpenter boy is not helping them out with their supposed religious rightness. And then what happens the next day keeps driving them crazy even more. Verse 12. Also remember, Jesus had been uh, in Bethany for about a week or so. That's where Lazarus is from. It's right outside of Jerusalem. It will be kind of like Simpsonville to Greenville, that kind of thing. And the day after the Pharisees tried to kill Lazarus is when Jesus is heading into town for for the big Passover feast. And we don't know how this massive horde of people gather. We don't know exactly how many there were. If you look right there in verse 12, the word crowd, that word is used 19 times in John's gospel, but only four out of the 19 does it say large crowd like it does here in verse 12. <clears throat> so this isn't 25 or 50. This, this isn't 200, 400, 600. The Jewish historian Josephus says that there were about two million people in Jerusalem for Passover at this time. So what we're probably talking about here with this large crowd is thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people lining each side of the road in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem as Jesus nears the city. And look at verse 13. I got some pictures for you. They all have palm branches in their hands and palm branches signify different things for Jews at the time. It was a symbol of hope for the nation of Israel and God's promises used at other festivals. It was a symbol of God's provision. They were also used, palm branches were used to welcome home heroes from battle. And as they wave their branches, they're crying out, Hoshana, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you're a Jewish person lining the streets that day, you know that this Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from the great Psalm 118. And that is a song about God's salvation in the past and his salvation that is to come in the future. Hoshana means grant salvation or save us, we pray. And here's the thing our Jewish friends would have understood that day. So much like the Hebrew names Joshua and Isaiah and Hosea, Jesus' name itself means God saves or God is salvation. And all of these names come from the same Hebrew root as Hoshana. It's, it's the root about salvation. This is Think about the irony of this. This is like having a party at work because you just hired a guy named Bill Cash to be your CFO. That's exactly what this is like. There's deep irony here. And the people on the streets, they know what's happening. They're not missing this. And they're crying out, Hoshana, Hoshana, grant salvation. And Jesus' name means God saves. God is salvation. It's a really beautiful and a really powerful scene but it's also really, really sad. These people are thinking, yes, 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 this is the one, God's provision, our hero. Now, are they right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Jesus is Messiah. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the true king. But the likelihood is that most of these people lining the streets that day think that he is going to overthrow Rome as a political liberator, maybe even a militaristic messiah. And that's why they're cheering so hard. I mean, they're, they're not as wrong as the Pharisees, but they're still off. They're not rightly recognizing what God is up to. And look at verse 14. It says that Jesus found a young donkey to ride into the city. And here in John's account, it seems as though Jesus is riding the donkey is in response to the people's hosannas. And I think there's a very interesting point to that. Shane Claiborne, in his very, very strange and interesting book, Jesus for President, writes the following. He says, scholars call this the anti-triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Claiborne writes, imagine the president riding a unicycle in a 4th of July parade. Kings did not ride donkeys. They rode mighty war horses accompanied by an entourage of soldiers and not peasants. And here, Jesus is making a spectacle of that. So, yes, Jesus is the king, but his kingdom might not look like we think. It might not look like they thought. And even the prophet Zechariah, years before, knew something about this in verse 15. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly and fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming with salvation, riding on a donkey's colt. Beautiful? Yes. Sad? Also yes. Now, we've started with the broadest misunderstanding here in our passage, the religious leaders. Like, they were way off in assessing what God was doing, and they're so flustered that go all the way down to the end of our passage, verse 19, that they say, we're getting nowhere, and then the hyperbole, the whole world is going after him. So they are the broadest misunderstanding. But then a bit more narrowly, we just looked at the crowds, and they, they kind of get it, and they're kind of getting it as it happens and not after the fact, but they're not getting it the right way like we just looked at. And maybe... Maybe you're like the people in the crowds. Maybe you're just a bandwagon Jesus fan. I mean, he did just tell a guy to quit being dead, and that's, that's impressive. But the likelihood that some in the Hosanna crowd are also the ones in the crucify him crowd is very, very high. Again, this has a twinge of sadness to it. <clears throat> but let's look even a bit more narrowly. So we have the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the crowds. Let's try to look a bit more narrowly. Certainly, the disciples who had been following Jesus around for a while, certainly they're going to get it. Certainly they're going to know exactly what's going down before and as it happens, right? Look in verse 16. His disciples did not understand. Stop right there for a second. They did not get it. They didn't understand. That means as he's riding into town, people are singing and cheering and woohooing because of God's salvation, and the disciples are clapping and yelling right along, Hoshana, Hoshana. But in the back of their heads, they're thinking, wait a second, I thought he said he was going to Jerusalem to go die. But everybody around them is still so hype, Hoshana, Hoshana, blessed is he, right? Like on the day that this happened, they didn't get it. And whatever level of understanding they had, it was mingled with confusion. 
And if you've read the Bible for a while, you know that this is nothing new for the disciples. It's not like they had an amazing track record of getting it. Like they were left scratching their head after parables. They were confused by demonic activity. Peter didn't get the transfiguration. He wanted to have a camp out instead. And when Jesus walks in the water in Mark, it says that they were afraid because they still didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000. In Matthew 16, Peter finally gets one right and confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus goes, that's right, and I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter jumps up and declares, not a chance, not on my watch. Even after the resurrection, in Luke 24, a few of the disciples didn't know that Jesus was raised and they were moping around going, oh, well, we thought that he was gonna be the one who was gonna redeem Israel. And the fact that they were with Jesus every day and they still didn't get it, it's super annoying, but here's the deal. We do the same thing. I would have bet every nickel I had, God wanted me to marry her, right? And you thought for sure that it was God wanting you to make that business deal or that financial move. But sometimes God is at work right in front of us and we do what the disciples do at the beginning of verse 16. We just don't get it. Now, before, before we move to the key that unlocks this thing, because it's here, listen to this line from R.C. Sproul, and this is good news. He said, you're not justified by faith by your ability to explain justification by faith. Here's what you gotta feel there. <clears throat> this is what that means. It means God's plan and love for you isn't activated by your perfect understanding of how he's at work right? That's really, really good. God is not waiting for you on the thermometer of ding, ding, ding. Oh, 75% understanding. They get it now of my sovereign eternal decrees. So now I can show them love. Like God's not waiting for that. Like this is where you can take a deep breath. This, this is grace. If you date him and you shouldn't, God still loves you. If you move and you shouldn't, he still loves you. If you say something mean because it felt right in the moment, he still loves you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's grace and kindness to you isn't waiting with bated breath for you to finally fathom the mechanics of mercy in order to then receive it. That's not how it works. So we can't go dogging the disciples because we're in good company with them, and that teaches us something. We can't point the finger at them and not at us, but then this points the finger to grace, right? But don't forget, Ephesians 5 is still a thing. Understand what the will of the Lord is. It is a command. And while his love isn't contingent upon our grasping how it works, there is an experiential beauty on the other side of understanding. Like there's an intimacy with God to be had. I think that's what he's inviting us into. It's not about, it's not about whether he loves us, but about sensing his love pulsing through our lives. And this is what understanding can lead to. And so, yes, I, I think we can understand what God is up to before and as it happens rather than later, but how? And that, that's what we're trying to, to figure out here. Well, <clears throat> the final answer is in the middle of verse 16. Look in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered. And in a Hebrew worldview, this kind of remembering includes an understanding. So, 
What does John mean by when he was glorified? <clears throat> That's the key phrase. You can skip down to verse 23. I'll put it on the screens for you. Jesus says in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Same word. So truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So down here in verses 23 and 24, the grain falling into the earth, that is death. The grain producing much fruit, that is resurrection. So now rewind to verse 16. <clears throat> the phrase, when Jesus was glorified, is another way to say, after his crucifixion and resurrection. That's when the disciples <clears throat> understood what happened on the Hosanna day, after Jesus' resurrection. They, they went back in their minds, and they played those things again in their minds, and then they started reinterpreting the whole thing, and then they began to see clearly. They reinterpreted the past couple weeks. They might have reinterpreted all of redemptive history, but they began to know what they should have known all along, that God is always working, usually not in ways that we expect or we think, but he's working in surprising and upside-down ways, like letting the true king of the world ride a donkey instead of a war horse. And they knew this more deeply than they thought, and, and I think you and I do too. Noah, <clears throat> go build a boat in the desert. I know it's not raining. Abraham, I'm going to change the world through your family. I know your wife can't have babies. Moses, I need you to go talk to the most powerful ruler of the most powerful empire in the world. I, 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 do, I know you have public speaking problems, I know. Samuel, I need you to go anoint David, Jesse's son, to be my king. I know he's the run of the litter. Hosea, I need you to go marry a prostitute to teach my people about faithfulness. I know she won't love you back. Jesus, I need you to go call 12 backwoods nobodies to yourself to learn from you. I know they'll be distracted. Jesus, I, I, I need you to, Jesus, my son, my son in whom I am well pleased, I need you to go die for the sins of the world. I know you're innocent. Jesus, I need you to come forth more gloriously than Lazarus. I know it's gonna be hard for them to believe. What we have to see here is this is not an abstract principle about God working in ways that we don't. It's that all of these things and more are the smallest foretaste and the gospel is the main course. In the gospel, God's character and God's will cannot be misunderstood. You can't live in misunderstanding if you're always focused on Jesus. Why? Because at the cross, God is not distant. He's not upset with you. He is gracious and he is near. The cross is how God is merciful, <clears throat> forgiving sinners, and just punishing sin at the same time. The cross is Jesus doing Ephesians 5 and understanding what the will of the Father is and doing it on our behalf for us because we can't. And then the resurrection, among many things, is if we do miss it, if we don't rightly recognize what he's up to, hope still gets the last word. It has the ace of spades. Hope wins right there. So listen, Kierkegaard, buddy, there is a way to live forward with understanding. 
You consider what's before you by first considering what's behind you. And what's behind you is a crucified and risen Jesus who has undone the power of sin and death and hell, who rode a donkey and not a stallion, who rules by compassion and not force, who wins by sacrifice and not violence, who sustains by grace and not manipulation. This is how he truly, truly saves Hoshana, Hoshana, our king. He is our king. And if you wake up every morning with this on your mind and you fade every night with this on your mind, then all of your decisions have to submit to God's perfect will in Jesus. And you won't have any space for your preference or your opinion or your will to be done. You ready for this? Think about it. Only in the gospel of Jesus can you learn from your mistakes before they happen. Whoa, Jim, how so? Because Jesus forgave them all at the cross 2,000 years ago. That is the most liberating and happy and humbling truth. That by grace, through faith in Jesus, there is a way we can learn from experience before it arrives. We don't have to be like the Pharisees and the crowds in this passage, just reacting to divine activity based on what we feel in the moment. <clears throat> Rather, if for the disciples, the cross and resurrection became the means of correctly understanding what God was doing in the world, then we should also hold tightly to these things. And because of them, we can face the future with hindsight wisdom. And for me, shatters my categories. Absolutely. Only the gospel has that kind of power. <clears throat> so how do we understand what God is up to before and as it happens? Well, here's what he's up to. By his spirit, he wants to conform you <clears throat> to the image of Jesus. And so in your dating and in your disagreements, in your finances and in your families, in your habits and in your hobbies, his supreme care is that you become an instrument of sacrificial love and light in all of these things, just like Jesus. And before and as you face pressure or temptation, what God wants from you is trust, just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not what I will, but your will be done. This is why John writes the whole book, for us to believe and trust, to bolster our faith in Jesus. And so when we're angry or sad or tired or hopeful or curious or on edge, the Father wants us to learn to rely on him in all things. Or to cite my mama's favorite verse, <clears throat> he wants you to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all of your ways, submit to him, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. You know, every year when we get to Palm Sunday, it's, it's strange for me. Like, it's a little weird. <clears throat> Again, I get, I get why we celebrate. Jesus is our king who has come in the name of the Lord. That is good news. I mean, I used to love uh, when I had time to go to more liturgical churches. And on Palm Sunday, they would all march out of the sanctuary carrying <clears throat> their palm branches when they left the church. It was tons of fun. I remember that being really moving. But the older I get and the more I think about it and study it, there's a, there's a sobriety to it, like a real gravity about it. F fractional, but similar to the gravity of Good Friday, almost. Because when it first happened, 
the people confessed with their lips as loud as they could, but their hearts and minds did not really understand what was going on. And here's the thing that just weighs so heavy. Sometimes I wonder how much I'm doing that. Sometimes I'm fearful about, man, am I just doing lip service to what's right here? And I get lost and confused in my own soul about how much I'm really understanding God. But here's what we have to truly know and deeply believe today in in the deepest part of who we are. Jesus, crucified and risen, will never, ever deter us from truly knowing God and what he wants. It's not possible. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Jesus is God in the flesh dwelling among us. He is the perfect understanding of the Father with skin on. And in his cross and empty tomb, he has overturned all of the evil and all of the chaos and all of the confusion in the world. And with him, there is divine grace and peace to be had. So, I do think uh, Kierkegaard was on to something. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. But this backwards understanding is only possible through the gospel of Jesus. Only possible. Fellowship Greenville, rejoice greatly and fear not. Behold, your king has come to you, riding on a donkey, dying for sin, and rising to make kingdom come. And that's good news today. I hope you believe that with all your heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, you perfectly sought and understood and obeyed the Father's plan. Thank you so much for doing that because we struggle so much with that. And Holy Spirit, cause us to be more impressed with and and distracted by Jesus than we are worried and fearful about how much we get it. Please, Spirit, give us a sense of assurance and confidence and calmness as we look to Christ. Jesus, again, we praise you and thank you that you're our hero and our savior and that our confidence comes from you and comes from clinging to you. Jesus, you're the king. Jesus, we love you so much. You're the best. Amen.